Hello, Plain Pack readers and listeners. I'm sitting here on a beautiful summer's morning at the Manhattan Cafe, and I'm joined by Kieran. Welcome, Kieran. Uh, <laughs> okay, Shackleton, Scott, and Ross are famous Antarctic explorers, which bring to my mind daring, bravery, and romance of polar expedition. And for some time, you were an Arctic explorer. Can you tell me, is it really like that? Uh, wow. Well, I guess those guys are from a certain era where they really were exploring new ground. And, well, to be honest, that's still possible. So, um, you know, there's... I've done a lot of work in the Antarctic, and and the Antarctic is a big place. Uh, so, you know, think of some a place one and a half times the size of Australia that gets thirty thousand visitors a year. This is, and they're nearly all tourists. They all go to one one sort of area generally. So there's a lot of ground to explore. So, yeah, yeah, there is a lot of uh, opportunity for daring do. Yes. <laughs> no. Um, at different times, and I'm taking this from information that I read about you online, you were an expedition leader, a mountain guide, a field training officer, and a biologist. Yeah. So which of these was the most challenging for you, and can you talk to us a little bit about them? Okay, so I think, you know, I started working um, in polar regions as a biologist, and, um, well, they're all different, I suppose. As a biologist, one of my early experiences was overwintering, working on emperor penguins. Um, Penguins. On emperor penguins, emperor penguins, which are the only species that are in the Antarctic, the only animal that's in the Antarctic in winter. Um, you know, in the story, they breed on the sea ice in the middle of winter, and the male holds, you know, broods the egg um, while the female goes to sea, which can be hundreds of kilometres across the sea ice, and you know, it's minus 30 every day and dark and windy and all that kind of thing. So, you know, the the being a biologist down there is very interesting, but also very um, they're long-term gigs. So you know, we at that time we were out on the ice for seven months, living in a shipping container, and um, you know, so life's kind of slow, and you um, work away at it. Whereas the other jobs, being an expedition leader or um, some of the more logistical jobs that I've done down there, are full of excitement, and movement happen in summer, lots of people around, lots of activity. Uh, so quite different. Yeah. So when you went to Antarctica, how did you get there? Uh, so um, I've been doing it for 20 years and uh, most of my trips have been by boat, by ship or by yacht. Um, so if you come, if you go from Australia, you're at least a week at sea longer. Um, generally 10 days. Um, the shortest routes from South America across the Drake Passage um, and you can do that in three days um, if, you're on a, if you're on a ship and a week if you're on a yacht. Uh, so, you know, that's part of the adventure, I suppose. I have flown in in more recent years. Um, so there's an airstrip on the Antarctic Peninsula and, and the Australians have got an airstrip on this side now and there's one at McMurdo, south of New Zealand. So people do fly in a bit now. Um, that's a different sort of experience because um, when you sail, you get there gradually and it's a real journey. And, um, you know, the wildlife emerges and the coldness happens over a period of time. You kind of get immersed in it. When you fly in, um, it's a bit more like you go and look. So 
I'm a bit of a fan of sailing. <laughs> <laughs> Work your way into it. Yeah. All right, so you've arrived in Antarctica. Where did you stay? What sort of camps were when you were there? Uh, well, I had a variety of trips. Most people will stay on a vessel. So if you... 90, 95% of people, whether they go as a tourist or even as a scientist, will, will go on a ship and stay on the ship and not stay ashore. Um, but a lot of the Antarctic coastline is either surrounded by sea ice um, or, in the case of the Antarctic Peninsula, which is south of South America, has massive fjords. So there's a lot of calm water and you can get right up close to the land. So you feel like you're part of it. Um, obviously I've, I've camped out a lot and stayed in field huts and stayed at stations as well so there's the whole variety but I think you know most people will be um, staying on a boat and going close to shore in calm waters that yes. kind of thing so yeah. just take a dinghy yeah. yeah 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 so dinghy so can you describe for me or for the listeners what's a typical day living in, in Antarctica how would you spend your day in Antarctica well you're a visitor, like if you're going down as a tourist on a Not as a, a tourist, ship. most probably as a scientist, as you may scientist. have done. Yeah, on a, as a scientist. <laughs> well, science is pretty repetitive. <laughs> um, so, say for example, when we're working on um, penguins or albatrosses, I did a lot of work that was about understanding where those animals, how they use the environment, what they feed on, where they go to feed, the sort of resource use. Um, around how humans use those resources as well because some of those species are in decline because you know albatrosses for example get caught behind fishing boats um when i was working on emperor penguins there was they feed on a mixture of things but a lot on krill and there was a krill fishery a russian krill fishery at the time so there's kind of you know looking at those impacts so basically the work i was doing was trying to understand um you know how those animals use their environment sort of baseline stuff we didn't really know that stuff um and we do that by tracking the animals so i worked at a time when um satellite tracking was just being developed and we had these little devices for animals that live at sea called time depth recorders and if you if you caught an animal and glued this stuff on its back you could figure out where it was going what it was feeding on how deep it was diving how it was using its environment so we basically camped out with the species we were studying would catch say an emperor penguin put on these devices let it go to sea do its foraging a trip and when it came back get the data um, and see what it had been doing. So there'd be lots of camping out, getting up in the morning, finding an animal, deploying um, deploying a device, letting it go, and then perhaps waiting for several hours for animals coming in from the sea to see if you know, one of your animals was there. Um, and then you know, catching that animal, taking the device back off. and you know, So lots of time outside all day. Yeah. How long was the day? How many hours was there? A lot of sunshine, or depends on the season. So, um, in winter, obviously, we're just working at night by headlamp. Well, working during the day, but it's dark by headlamp, um, and we would still work a sort of a normal day, sort of nine, nine, nine hours <laughs> thereabouts. Um, and in summer, of course, it's 24 hours sunlight, so you tend to be more active and work even longer then. So, yeah, long days. Long days. How, how do you catch a penguin? <laughs> Um, if it's a small penguin, they're kind of easy. You can just go up and grab them uh, with your hands. Um, but emperors are, you know, they're big. They can be um, 
25, 30 kilos. Um, and they're very mobile um, because the sea ice, they, they travel hundreds of kilometres across the sea ice, so they're good at it, um, better than we are. Um, so we had quite an elaborate technique for those. We had a massive, well, we had a very long um, shepherd's cook and we would identify the penguin we wanted to catch and run after it and it would do this thing instead of walking it would flop onto its belly and toboggan so it would be on its belly and push with its feet which is really fast it's about as fast as you can run um, and so when it started doing that we'd run behind it and and put this 12 foot long shepherd's crook um, around its shoulders and just pull it up um, and then and then move up onto it and sort of hold it down and get on its back. So, yeah, it's a bit of a technique. Astonishing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're pretty fit to do that, I would think, as well. Yeah, yeah you need to be fit. So I, I think you were a keen photographer. Is that correct when you were there? I was, yeah, so yeah. So what yeah. sort of things did you like to photograph? What were your favourite subjects? Uh, oh, there's so much to photograph there. So wildlife and uh, ice and the light on the ice and the ocean, all those things that change... Um, from hour to hour, so, and the light is beautiful as well. Um, so, landscapes really, wildlife and landscapes. Mm, yeah. Beautiful. What have you done with those photographs? Have you... I used to be really keen, and um, I got a lot published in calendars and magazines and that kind of thing, and used Good. to write, write stories and that 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 sort of thing. I worked on some doing some shoots for film companies as well, that, you know, so a bit of everything. Lovely. <laughs> well, let's talk about packing. Okay. So what did you pack when you travelled to the Antarctic? Well, I, I mean, I guess for me, I'm thinking about the, the trip and what I'll need, but I did, you know, in preparation for this, I kind of thought, well, if I was packing light, how would I go about, how would I go about that? Um, and I think um, there's some specifics <laughs> that um, so one thing to go to a cold place I don't think you need a lot of clothes you need just the right amount of clothes so I think um, and that's one thing I try and do because you know space and weight is always at a premium um, so I, I try and um, do some research about where I'm going and what the sort of minimum temperature is going to be and how wet it's going to be or dry because the Antarctic being a big place you know some of it's maritime and quite warm so even in even in summer um say on the antarctic peninsula it'll be it'll be wettish and kind of hovering about zero minus two degrees so that's kind of you need you need certain clothes for that which is quite different from if you're going on land um and it might be minus 20 it's quite dry um so you don't need waterproofs at all um but you need you know, an extra layer of down or something like that. So, Are you describing what you would take from leaving Australia, say, and yeah. going for a few months' stay yeah. to yeah, Antarctica? Yeah. Yes. yeah, so what I would do is um, research where I was going, make sure I understood what the climate was like specifically, and pack um, one or one, really one set of clothes to cope with the, the coldest temperatures. Um, and that would not be um, one big jacket or anything, that would be layers. So that then you're really adaptable. So if you've got um, several layers, yeah, can you describe what those clothes are? Yeah, yeah. So they're um, so I would layer up. So if I was going to the Antarctic Peninsula and expected a minimum temperature of like minus 10 degrees in a maritime climate, I would have like a, a thermal layer against the skin. Um, you know, a wool thermal. 
layer and then um, a couple of layers of um, pile over that and then What's pile um, so like polyfleece oh, right. polyfleece mm-hmm. uh, and then a down layer and then um, a waterproof windproof layer over that so with that that means I can I'm comfortable at the coldest temperatures yeah. um, but I'm also I've got all the clothes I need for when it gets warmer as well yes. so you can just just peel off so wouldn't be taking a big big heavy jacket that filled up my suitcase mm. I'd be just taking those layers and the only duplicates you know even if you're going away for a while you always end up wearing the same clothes, right? So the only duplicates you need are underclothes and a spare pair of gloves and socks if something goes wrong and you get wet. Yes. So you don't actually need that much. No, no. That much more. No. Yeah. And what about footwear? So I think um, you, you can get away with one pair of shoes if you select wisely. Um, and, you know, if you, if you especially if you're trying to pack light, you, mm. footwear is massive and heavy. and um, So, yeah, so I would be... Um, taking a pair of hiking boots um, that can that I can walk on snow and ice and put a light set of crampons on, but also that I can wear in the plane and get around the ship on and that kind of thing. So, yeah. And if you were going on, say, a short expedition, let's visualise you're in Antarctica and you've got to go onto the ice for a, a week or so, what? How would you carry your gear with you? Uh, would you would you go use some transport for that, or would you be walking, hiking, and and how would you carry your food, for example? I guess it depends on the trip, and um, of course you need to know that before you go. Um, plenty of times, though, um, it's been in a rucksack. In a rucksack, in a, in yeah. ba- on your back. On your back, and you might say you might be on skis, um, and you have your stuff in your in your rucksack so that's the way I always pack um, with a just a rucksack minimum amount of clothes um, and room to add those things like food or whatever whatever I need Yes, never been a suitcase person. No, no, no. Imagine you'd have to carry everything on your back. Yeah, yeah. Everything yeah. that you travel yeah. with, you'd have yeah. to carry yeah. on your back. You need to be able to chuck stuff in boats and dinghies and, um, you know, yes. have it on rough surfaces. Yeah, so I've never been a wheels person. No, no. I, I think <laughs> wheels would work that well somehow yeah. down on the ice and in the snow. So if someone were thinking of making a career for themselves by doing something similar, how would they go about doing that? Oh, that's interesting. So there's a number of ways to get into um, that polar work. Um, obviously, there's the way I did it, which I think um, is the classic way. It's the way people's mind go, oh, there's lots of scientists who work in the Antarctic, so, you know, you could embark on a scientific career. Um, but there's also a lot of other avenues. And one of the ones, you know, there's actually more people doing trades um, than there are scientists by about... You know, five to one. Uh, what so, do you mean by trades? So, diesel mechanic, carpenter, um, electrician, plumber, um, all those people or who are there to keep things working and keep stuff happening. Uh, so, the communities so, yeah, that are, yeah, are living yeah, in Antarctica. Yeah, that's probably one of the. You know, that's mm. that's one of the ways. A cook, I'm sure. A chef would be chef, sought yeah, after. Doctor. Yeah, yes. All those yes. sort of those those yeah. people that deliver our. An essential service. Yes. Yeah. Um, so if you, you know, to go onto a, a base, 
for you know a government-sponsored Antarctic program. Those people outnumber the scientists five, ten to one. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so, do you ever go back to the Antarctic since you've since you've stopped doing this as a kind of profession? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm still. Um, so. Uh, I'm potentially going back in February this year, so um, but I just pick and choose the trips now, and um, you know I, my role now has become, I guess, a bit of a um, local knowledge person. So people get me in to run trips uh, when I know an area really well, and they need someone who knows the area really well to make the, the trip kind of zing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll go and do that, and I love going down there. Um, but I guess I think I. Over 20 years, I spent seven and a half years in the Antarctic, all up, and 25 trips. And, um, you know, so I needed to do something, something else different. for a while, yes, <laughs> rather right. than invest yes. so much time. Yes. Um, so, you know, so I definitely don't, I don't want to close it off. No. Um, but, yeah, I, I need to just do the right amount. Yes. So if you can describe just one absolutely fabulous highlight of all those many, many years that you spent working in the Antarctic, what would that be? Well, there's so many that it's hard to nominate one. Well, it's very varied, and I spent such a long, a long time there. I mean, I think the highlight really in those places is, I mean, they're beautiful places to be, um, and the rhythm of life is is much more dictated by nature and, and the environment, which is really lovely. Um, but I think you're always there with people, and the relationships that you develop with people are much stronger they're, for me anyway they're much they, they seem to evolve much more quickly and be much more stronger much stronger and, and quite long lasting when you're in that kind of environment that um, where you're together all the time um, so I guess the friendships are the things that you know um, are really meaningful to me and all the wonderful photos and sides <laughs> experiences yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been amazing talking to you, Kieran. Thank you very much for this brief insight into the Antarctic. I'm sure we could spend a lot of time talking about many more things, uh, but it's just been wonderful to get that little taste. So I'm sure the readers will appreciate it. So thanks again. Thank okay. you very much. Thanks, Bobby. It's been a pleasure.